Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South Podcast. He is Chris Marler. I am Kyle Guerra. Marler, we get SEC football this month. It is about damn time. September has finally come. We are standing here today. 25 days. Yeah, we're sitting. We don't record podcasts while standing. I don't think we've ever done that. We're 25 days away from SEC football. And that's a great thing. That's a very, very good thing. The fact that we're seeing all these these tweets today, including yours from, from the SDS account, saying we're going to have football this month. It's kind of like, oh, yeah. I know we just had college football over this past weekend, but, like, real football. We're going to have this real month. Football. Yeah. Well, let me, let me start by saying I don't like the voice you used for me. Um, I don't think that was a voice for you particularly. Okay. That's fine. I mean, I might be insensitive about it. That's fine. Um, regardless, I'm super excited. Just, I mean, absolutely super excited. Did you watch the game this weekend? I was at a wedding. I was at a wedding. Yeah. So, unfortunately, um, I was watching my sister-in-law get married up in Indianapolis. Drove 30 hours round trip to be able to do that. Drove through essentially the third, a third of SEC schools. Like, had some point along the way where I went through those college towns. You know, like Knoxville and Lexington right. and Nashville. Oh, you went to Knoxville. Yeah, went through like everywhere basically. But when you're driving for 30 hours, you don't really want to stop a whole lot. Yeah, so that's fair. didn't exactly do that. Did get to stop in Lexington, have lunch with my brother. Um, unfortunately, did not get to meet up with Cash Daniel, who told me after the fact that he was upset about that. Sorry, Cash. I know he's listening. Sick brag. Sick brag on that one. Um, but it was it was a, a very, very long trip. So that yeah, is my long-winded way of saying I did not, unfortunately, get time to watch the game this weekend that actually was played. And, like, good quality football, apparently, sort of, kind of? Uh, the fourth quarter. The last, yeah, like, yeah. eight minutes, it was a gambler's dream. It was fantastic. I had a blast. Um, yeah, for the most part, it was not great football for, for, I don't know, the middle part of the game, but the fourth quarter was awesome. It was a great way to start the year. I was really excited. Did some grilling out, um, did some drinking, did some some live tweeting. I just, I felt back, just back in the high life again. Back in the high life means that there is a certain partner of ours that is also back with us for the college football season. Before we get to everything that we have today, we have a lot today. We have an interview coming up with... Our news editor, Michael Bratton, we're going to talk some top 25 stuff because it is top 25 week here at SDS. We're going to talk a lot of the LSU stuff, Big Ten stuff, all of that. But before we get to that, Marler, our best friends, Texas Pete, they're back. We are back. Guys, I know what you're thinking. Chris, you know, what's been going on in 2020? You've been talking about gambling nonstop. Where is the flavor? The flavor is back. Okay. Oh, Pete, Pete, mother. Can't say that. We'll bleep it out. Um, Listen. I am ecstatic to announce that, you know, last summer or last fall was Hot Girl Fall, right? I remember. We'll have to think of like a new pun for this year. Regardless, 2020 has been a nightmare. The best thing that's going to happen for the next three months of my life is me overeating on game days and on Thursdays and Mondays and Tuesdays and grilling out with our good friends at Texas Pete. Now, listen, it's not just the hot sauce, Connor. You put it on your eggs every morning. Okay. It's not just that. It's the wing sauce. It's speed dust it's a variety of flavors just an absolute variety of flavors make sure you go get some texas pete today no game day or tailgate is a real tailgate without texas pete get your home gating set up all that good stuff uh and go see our friends at texaspeat.com or do what i do and just get a big old handful of deli meat put it in a ziploc bag and then just douse it 
in uh, in Texas Pete and, and tell yourself that that's a healthy thing to do while you're eating with your hands at 34 years old. Texas Nothing Pete. Wrong Nothing wrong okay. with that. I kid you not. I was talking to my father-in-law over the weekend and saying, we were just talking about the basic structure of the podcast model. I'm sure you've had to have those conversations with other people of like, oh, yeah. how do you make money when you're a podcast? And one of the things I was telling him was, oh, yeah, like Texas Pete is, is our presenting sponsor. He's like, oh, Texas Pete, that's legit. That's, that is the best hot sauce. I have that all the time. And he doesn't mess around when it comes to that stuff. He's a produce man himself. So that is a man who knows a thing or two about some hot sauce. That's not even part of the ad read, I promise you. No. We have a ton to get to. So, so much to get to. We first have to start with what's been going on at LSU. Now, Sunday afternoon, all of a sudden, get that text, sitting down in Lexington with my brother who I haven't seen in nine months, and to be able to, to have some lunch with him and get a notification, oh, Jamar Chase is opting out of the 2020 season. And all of this stuff is going down. Tyler Shelvin also opts, opted out on Monday. We, we saw uh, TK McClendon enter the transfer portal, someone who was once considered a possible starter at defensive end, but yeah, reportedly passed up on the depth chart. And you also saw the story about all but four LSU offensive linemen were quarantined because of COVID exposure. What I'm trying to say is I think I jinxed LSU last week by defending them in the rankings that that we were talking about because oh, a yeah. lot of stuff has been going down in the last week in Baton Rouge. I mean, it is, you know, I think this offseason was crazy for everyone, but not the best start for the defending national champions. Not ideal. You know, I think the stuff with Jamar Chase is, is super interesting because I'm never going to fault a, a player for doing what's in their best interest from like a health standpoint or from, you know, like making money and, and, and providing like the best option for their future. It is an interesting timing of, of the whole thing just because you know it, it's a it's a guy that was by all means going to play this season even though it's gonna be a top five pick uh in almost every single mock draft we've seen and then also you know i think he had the, the tweet that ended up getting old takes exposed yeah with the, you know we want to play um that being said you know i think people initially saw this and were kind of freaking out that we're going to see just a rash of this and it's going to be like a domino effect it's, it's going to start happening now and we did see it with Tyler Shelvin on LSU's team. I don't necessarily think that we're going to see that just start rampantly happening happening everywhere in the SEC. That's but the I wrong word. Think- That's the wrong word. I do think we will see it happen more in the SEC. But I I, I, I think that this is this was just a reminder of look because of the timing of the SEC, and this is what I've been saying as opposed to why the SEC's difference with the opting out was different than the Big Ten and, and seeing the Rondell Moore, Rashad Bateman, Michael Parsons, mm-hmm. that stuff. Because of the timing of camp and the way that the season was set up with the SEC not scheduled to start the season until September 26th and why this process was going to happen a little bit later. Now, again, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to start happening left and right. We've seen Florida avoid situations like that where it looked like they were potentially going to have a bunch of receivers that were sitting out, as well as Zach Carter at defensive end who was expected to do some big things in Todd Grantham's defense. But I do think that we are going to still see at least some more of these. Now, I'm not saying a lot. But I think it's realistic to still think that we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to good players in the SEC opting out. Yeah, I think it's going to be one of the situations that is going to change throughout the season. And and you're going to see, I said Mm -hmm. this a couple weeks ago, you're going to see players that, you know, late in the season, especially if if some of those championship hopes that, you know, might have been at the start of the season and aren't there at the end of the season, you're going to probably see more kids do what's in their best interest for their future and, and probably opt out. And I think the biggest thing, looking at the Jamar Chase thing, is, what else could he have proven this year? Exactly. His numbers were going to go down with the 10-game season anyways. 
Exactly. And so I don't think, I, I, you know, I, of course, living in like the social media age that we're in now, I, I saw every possible scenario of why he didn't want to play because he's didn't want to go up against the competition, the SEC, even though he just did right. that last year. Yeah, and, sure. And that's it. doing it. Um, I, you know, I think that when you look at a kid like that and there's not really much improvement he can do on his draft stock, what, what I, this is not a conspiracy theory, I don't think, but when you see that the Tyler Shelvin news that co- comes after it, I kind of wonder if we're going to see stuff where if this isn't being held in check at certain schools, you know, like, like LSU's entire offensive line out with, with you know, with COVID. For Had four offensive line who are reportedly healthy and put good to go. Apparently they are back uh, in camp. We saw that report right. today from Bodie Miller. But I'm saying if, if, this start, if we start to see kind of like, I don't want to say breakouts of it, we start seeing this – kind of going around different teams and we see a lot of people kind of getting um, infected with it or whatnot. I do think that we'll see kids at those universities, especially if they have a lot more to gain by not playing and by going, you know, to mm-hmm. keep, keep their health in check, it makes sense for them to maybe opt out. And I don't think that's, you know, LSU's fault or, or, or Coach O's fault that they didn't like, quote unquote, keep it in check or they couldn't like limit the virus. But we're going to see people that are going to test positive for this, like whether we like it or not. Yeah. So I, I just think it's going to be one of those things that you're going to ha- – it's one of the – that's just thousand different variables going to factor into the season of having to manage all of the extra surrounding uh, incidents and stuff. Real quick, because there's, there's a couple of big, big picture things with, with LSU that I think are important to, to break down, especially after the conversation that we had about last week and where they should be at to start the season, what should expectations be. Jamar Chase, that dude's a legend. And watching his maturation last year with how he learned how to get separation, if you go back and watch him from 2018 compared to 2019, it is incredible. Even if you go back and watch him late 2018, when we did that, it just meant more for the Texas Texas A&M game, the UCF game as well. The change that we saw from him was special. And he is someone that if the rule wasn't in place, there is no doubt in my mind that that guy could have gone to the NFL draft this past year and been probably a top 15 pick and been up there with the Jerry Judys, Henry Ruggs of the world, CeeDee Lamb, those guys. And to me, yeah, it's a bummer. It is a major bummer that we're not going to see him play this year if I'm an LSU fan. Obviously, totally get that. I think he is going to be so special at the next level, and I'm just glad that we got to watch a player be yeah. that good at the at this level in the SEC. Where you're talking about somebody who set the SEC record and SEC touch and for a single season set the record for receiving touchdowns, receiving yardage, and won the Blitnikoff. And frankly, in my opinion, shouldn't have even been that close. Like the guy yeah. was so unbelievably special that. You, you kind of forget over the course of the season just how good he was, especially against elite competitions. Like seven games of 140 receiving yards or more. That's that's an absurd thing to do I, at this level. Not We're not talking some Big 12 stuff here. We're talking about doing this against against the SEC, a team that went 15-0. and 0. Mm-hmm. With all that talent around him, what an unbelievable year. And it, that guy is, is an LSU legend for life in my book. I'd agree with that. I'm pretty sure that uh, Trayvon Diggs is still just spinning circles, uh, you know, in the corner of that end zone after having to go up against him because that I don't blame him. I don't blame tough him. Tough to watch. Yeah, he's going to be fun at the next level. I think he's Odell Beckham Jr. 2.0, but without the drama. I think that's that's kind of what what he can potentially do at the next level. You heard it here first, guys. Um, but as this relates to LSU, because LSU fans, I, I get it. Y'all have been resisting this, and I've kind of been right there with you because. I do think that some of this is is overblown a little bit, and I thought the pendulum had swung a little bit too far in one direction. 
But the tweet, and I know you, you brought this up as well yeah. on social media from Brian Fisher, is, is stunning to think about. And this was before the Tyler Shelvin news as well. It's He tweeted out the starting depth chart from the national championship game. Crazy. There are 31 names on offense, and now 14 of those names are crossed off. Terrace Marshall and Austin Deculus are the only starters back. On defense, there are 26 names. 12 of those names are crossed off. Derek Stingley, Jacoby Stevens, Glenn Logan, and DeMonte Clark are uh, DeMonte Clark are the, the starters that are coming back from that right. unit. So that's essentially six starters out of a possible 22 coming back. And if you need a little more to interpret that, because I think sometimes we that, that stat is a little bit overblown about how many starters are coming back. It could be kind of skewed. LSU, before all of this went down, was ranked number 128 out of 130 teams on, in terms of offensive production returning. That's right. the stat that Bill Connolly does every single year, formerly of SB Nation, now with ESPN. Again, that was before Jamar Chase, the best receiver in college football, arguably the best player in college football, opted out. They were number 127. Yeah, I know, Trevor Lawrence, Dustin Fields, part of that conversation as well. But just in terms of the way that he dominated his position last year. Right. They were number 127 out of 130 overall before all of those opt-outs. I would have to assume that they are now dead last in FBS in terms of all FBS teams as it relates to percentage of returning production. That obviously doesn't include losing a couple of very important assistants like Dave Aranda and Joe Brady. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that LSU is going six and four or anything like some are. And I get it if people are, are saying that because of what they lost. I, I don't think we have ever seen a national champion lose this much talent and production off of one team. Well, but, yeah, welcome to the party, Connor. Been saying this all offseason. I think it's different when you lose Jamar Chase, Tyler Shelvin as well. Two guys who are preseason first team all SEC guys. I think that I, so takes I, I disagree with this. I feel like this is and this is what's going to happen just knowing how fans are in general. I, there was actually and I wish I would have written down his name. There's one um, LSU fan in the in the podcast group that was like, "Who cares? Next guy up." You know, we're loaded at receiver, and I love that attitude. But if we're looking at this entire team and this roster, and we're and we're saying they lost 14 players to the draft, they lost a generational quarterback, they lost both coordinators basically, or one and a half coordinators. They lost the coordinator that changed that entire landscape of that of that program and that that offense, and did things that they had never like not just they had never done before, but like again. They were second to last or last for like seven or eight straight years in touchdown passes from a quarterback in the mm -hmm. SEC. And then Joe Burrow throws 60. So, like, I get I, I get the whole, you know, we're going to reload, and, and I love the positivity. But you can't sit here and say, well, yeah, you know, we lost those people. We're going to reload. It doesn't really matter. And then once Jamar Chase is gone, I'm like, oh, you know what? Yeah. Once we lost Chase, okay. it was over. I would, I would argue that Jamar Chase changes entirely how a defense operates just because of what he does and what he demands and how he changes what Terrace Marshall's going to do, how he changes what Eric Gilbert's going to be able to do in that offense. Racy McMath, who's expected to do big things in the slot, he's been written as one of these breakout offensive guys. Totally get that. But here's what I come back to. While my expectations for LSU have certainly lowered, I'd still say I'm probably above what the average is, especially after seeing some of the reactions to Jamar Chase going down. And I acknowledge, look, regression is imminent. It's going to happen. I'm not yep. sitting here and saying that LSU is just going to pick up right where it left off, 9-1 SEC championship, and everything's going to be good as gold. Here's what I will say, though. If LSU, at season's end, or even just late in November, early December, is somehow in the hunt again, 
y'all better put some respect on Coach O's name because sure this, it, is, yeah. this is a much tougher challenge than 2018, especially after this offseason when we've had all these different COVID-related things that have limited practice. I always say that if you're a team right now who's who's trying to be able to kind of deal with all the, you know, the challenges that this has presented, you want to have more veterans. LSU obviously does not have that in spades. This is the ultimate how high is LSU's floor question for 2020. If LSU somehow, somehow, I'm not saying they will, if they find a way to go eight and two, next year they're gonna be a preseason top three team with legit national title goals for 2021. And I think that right now, if you're an LSU fan, the expectations have been lowered to a level where now, coming off of this national championship season, you can kind of sit back and go, you know what? The national, all everything is has turned against us. And if we get now to a point where we're still competing with Alabama, and I'm not saying that they will, but if you're still competing with Alabama, maybe you beat Florida or something like that, you're feeling very, very good about the direction of your program. I just, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right, and like that's a logical way to look at it. But like, it can't be both things. It can't be like we're going to come out, we're going to reload and dominate and blah blah, and then be like. Man, how impressive was it that we just kept our heads above water? You know, like, well, like competing with Bama, like you're supposed you should you're supposed to be beating Bama like every year. LSU's supposed to be Bama every year? Not every year, but you know what I mean. Like they shouldn't be like it shouldn't be like the if the goal is competing with Bama, mm-hmm. I don't think that's good enough because the goal should be to beat Alabama, right? I think it's I think some, it still will be. And I I think that's something that they're gonna be able to do on a consistent basis for the most part with with uh with coach o and like and competed like those games like they had against les miles there was no way les miles was ever going to out coach nick saban just there was no way yeah so i I love i love to have coach o in that matchup that being said like i'm not going to sit here and be like oh man what a gutsy effort by this team if they lost everybody from the the previous year because that's just that's a part of the the sport now and and like again it's i'm not even worried about them losing all the players it's the coordinators Okay, that's fair. I mean, I think that's I, I think that is perfectly fair to have those questions about LSU in a year like this. When I, I acknowledge that I am more a believer that Steve Ensminger had a, an active role in that offense, and I do sort of believe Coach O. And he's like, yeah, he called seventy percent of the plays. He was the one. Was Ensminger the offensive coordinator at that university at before last season at, at one point? Twenty eighteen. Did that offense look anything like what they did last year? No, I mean they, they at didn't at all. Did it look the, like the that is, anything it's looked like in the past decade? And they're going to be running that offense. They're not going to be running the offense that they ran in 2018. I understand that it is different when you don't have the the guy, the engineer of that offense, and it's kind of like, hey, you're left to run this. I get it. That, that is the big question in Baton Rouge. There's no doubt about it. And just because you've done it before doesn't mean that you can automatically do it again. It's a perfectly fair thing. I have more confidence than a lot of people that I saw on, on Twitter that LSU will somehow still be somewhat relevant in this oh, league. Oh, yeah. They're going to be that, relevant. Yeah. yeah. That's that's all I'm trying to say. Because there are people that are just pouring dirt on LSU right now. It's an easy target. And I get it. Uh, when you lose that much talent, how could you not? How could you not? Because we, yeah. we do, we're not necessarily used to seeing LSU. It'd be different if LSU is coming off of like, hey, you know, maybe like three of the last four years they went to the playoff or something like that. Or three of the last four years they won a division title. It's just different now because we saw such a different height last year, yeah. and and now it has created this this win variability that's sort of all over the place. And LSU fans are are right now trying to bang the drum as much as possible, saying, "Well, 
you know what, we're, we're still going to be good, and y'all are just going to have to deal with that. They're still going to be good. And I tell you what, that like, and I'm, I'm not trying to like take away any kind of credit to Enzinger. I'm just saying, if we're looking at what his number, the numbers, like these, these are black and white facts that we saw and stats of what the offense did under him and what the offense did under him and Joe Brady. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, and I, I just feel like, and I, I love, I love Coach O, and I, and I really like. There's not a better fit for a job in this country than Coach O at LSU, and I think he's going to have that program, especially next year with all this young talent they have, competing for national championships and SEC championships year in and year out. This season, from what we saw last year, I just feel like we're having to make so many excuses as to why there's a good reason for them that they're going to be good. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, they lost all this, but like, also here's this. I just, I feel like there's always a yeah, but when trying to convince ourselves that LSU is going to be good this year. I, I think they're going to be gr- like a good team. I think they're going to be great next year. What do you think so, the win total, the expectation should be for LSU this year? The expectation, seven. Seven and three. Anything above um, that is a win. Anything below that no, is... No, I mean, they could, like, I think seven and three would be respectable just with everyone they lost. I, I think they could easily, like, I mean, Florida on the road is kind of tough. Auburn on the road. Bama Florida on the road home, is, is tough. A&M on the road. I, I, this team could still easily get to get to eight, nine wins. I just think huh? that, like, if we're looking at a realistic thing, I, I think seven is is where the, the, you know, the bar should be. Gotcha. Let's talk about a conference that is still not scheduled to play this fall, but there have been a lot of things that have come out in the last few days. Friday was a circus in the Big Ten. This last uh, last few weeks have essentially been a circus in the Big Ten. We've got Nebraska players filing lawsuits. We've got reports of the Big Ten starting on Thanksgiving. There are apparently reports of the Big Ten even starting in the second week of October. We found out on Monday that the Big Ten universities actually did vote 11-3 to to cancel the season, which only happened because these Nebraska players had this lawsuit where they're like, hey, we don't believe this actually happened. Yeah. You better make sure that it actually happened or else you're going to have a Beautiful. big legal issue on your hand. So we've even got Donald Trump saying that he's on the one-yard line after a conversation that he had with Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren, a conversation which Trump said was very productive. Now, there are a lot of opinions out there about what should we make of all of this. There's the obvious, holy crap, the Big Ten is a mess. And no matter what side of the fence you fall on with all this, the Big Ten is a mess. Mm -hmm. But here's what I keep coming back to with the Big Ten. I hate that the optics are everything, everything in all of this, all of this. It's been the optics to cancel the season. It's been the optics to try and save face from Kevin Mm -hmm. Warren's perspective and why this has looked so messy over the last few weeks and why I believe some of these things have been leaked, some of these things have been reported, is because the Big Ten is trying to double back. A Big Ten commissioner who didn't even realize that he would have so much pushback after this decision came out and after this decision was communicated so poorly to the masses who were so upset by it. And it's the optics that have driven us to this point. I believe it's the optics that got us to this point where we have not only Donald Trump, but we have Joe Biden who's coming out. And Joe Biden is is, is going down to Midwest state, states and saying that, oh, Trump is the reason that we're not having college football. That's unbelievable, too. I hate the fact that, that either you know presidential candidate ahead of an election is using Big Ten football or any sort of college football as a political platform. That bothers me so much. Because so much. The issue is... If you're, 
if, if I was a politician, I said this, you know, I said this a month ago about DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who was trying to get the Florida, Florida state matchup, you know, to have it. If I, and I'm not to get too political here or anything like that, but when, you know, these people are talking directly about it, yes, the stick to sports crowd, Connor, I'm sorry, real that, quick, that the gets good news into is it. If you get even remotely political, if anyone gets upset about it and we get a bad review, it's just going to somehow blame me for it regardless, so. I mean, call, call me out. There are going to be people who probably aren't going to like what I have to say about it. Call me out. I, I, I don't care. That's that's fine. And and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm I'm on one side or the other of all this. I just hate that optics are driving this so much and that there are people who are toying with the minds and hearts of all of these college football fans who all we want is college football. And optics have driven these decisions so much to make it look like, oh, Kevin Warren is trying to double back and trying to make it seem like he's actually trying to save a season. Because how do also this get floated out there that the Big Ten is reportedly having conversations about a Thanksgiving start? That's just conversations. That's not actual things that are happening. And nothing has happened with the Big Ten. You know what, I'm, we know what I would do if I was a presidential candidate trying to win an election in a few months? I would either say, hey, this this guy who's in office is the reason that it's not going to happen, or I would say, hey, I had a, I had a production, productive conversation. I got on the phone with Kevin Warren, which I'm not doubting that that happened. That conversation happened. The Big Ten came out and acknowledged that, yes, Kevin Warren and Donald Trump had a conversation. But you know what I would do? I would say, yeah, we're on the one-yard line. We feel productive. I hate that that's being used for political gain in any from any party. And that bothers me so much because it doesn't result in us college football fans actually getting what we want. It's them yeah. telling us what we want to hear. And that's yeah. being used on both parties. And that is so frustrating because this shouldn't be about optics. It should be about reason. And we as college football fans are being pulled in every which direction. Yeah. And Big Ten's fans especially are being pulled in all these different directions because of the optics and because of what what message these university presidents want out there. And because when you have a lawsuit on your hands and you're being ripped for not being transparent, all of a sudden you throw people a bone. You say, oh, here's the 11 to three vote. I'll give you that little bone. And when you, you're trying to do all these things to save face and you're so focused on the optics, you're trying to use all these different angles, yeah, you're gonna have a mess on your hands. And so the whole thing just frustrates me because when I saw that come out today, I was like, Call me when something actually happens instead of people trying to use this for their own optics. If you say optics one more time, I'm going to... I hate saying it. I love the letter um, O and I hate saying optics. You know, I, I, th I just think that... I saw this last week because I saw Trump tweet it. And, you know, I, I've always said this. And this is not political. This is just... I, I've, I've always said this. Trump, Trump's Twitter is like drunk me Twitter. It's like you're going to wake up the next day. Like, oh, God. What did I say last night? And be like, well, you went off. We started bombing Iceland. And like, I don't oh. even know if they're an enemy, but probably they were pretty big dickheads in that second Mighty Ducks movie. So, like, they that's, were. They were. Yeah, people forget that. Um, when I saw Trump tweeted, I was like, oh, this kind of feels like it's pandering. And then I found out that Biden's the one that started this whole thing. And I'm not going to get into like a, a political thing, but I will say this because this will surprise a lot of people. But I, I side with the president on on the way this was handled, and and I tell you what, like, because I, I really don't like the fact that with what I, I think like Biden going into the midwestern states and kind of saying the like you know this is why we're not going to have a football season. I you're right, like I don't understand. There's no reason to do that, and you you are just like trying to either have your own personal gain or political gain. Cheap from it, political or, points. Yeah, or or sitting here trying to 
dangle something in front of us and be like, yeah, you know, like, you know, everything's going to be kind of, we're going to have a season. Like, we should start today. And that's not realistic. But I, I, I tell you, like, outside of, like, the politics of it, it's been entertaining as blank to watch the Big Ten just fumble after fumble after fumble at every opportunity they've had. And, and I, I still come back to the fact that I don't think that Kevin Warren is going to actually try to do anything, not everything, anything in his power to make sure the season starts. Like, you really think that they're going to start an entire season in th- on Thanksgiving weekend and go into the middle of winter to play this, this season? There's no way. There's absolutely no way. But I, I tell you what, my favorite thing about Greg Sankey, and, and you know, I, and I gave him a lot of grief for like the way he did the scheduling, all that kind of stuff. But the fact that Greg Sankey and this entire conference never had to have the president come hold their hand and try to walk them out of a situation they got themselves into is, is just a, a point of pride that I will wear on my sleeve forever. What frustrates me is that these decisions are, have, have reportedly already been made. If university presidents have come out and voted on this stuff. University presidents are making these decisions because they have tens of millions of dollars of university endowments that are impacted by college football. And they are put in these positions and not necessarily just the coaches and not even the president of the United States or someone who's running for president. There's a reason that they don't just like call up Joe Biden or Donald Trump yeah. and be like, hey, should we have a season? What do you think about this? And then hang up the phone and let that dictate everything. There's a reason that Kevin Warren actually wasn't the person who made this decision. He was just the person who communicated this decision very, very poorly and did not do the work that he should have he on behalf of the university presidents. That's, that's, so that's the frustrating thing. And him not realizing this, that th- there was going to be this blowback, is has been the has been the fuel for everything that has happened these last few weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the Big Ten is absolutely 100% not going to start off the season on Thanksgiving. But if that does happen, it's going to be because of optics. And I hate the fact that it's an easy thing to be able to kind of piggyback in and, and like do it after the fact when these decisions have already been made and barring a very, very groundbreaking thing, and I know the new saliva test was apparently, that was reportedly part of the conversation that Kevin Warren and Donald Trump had was about getting access to those new saliva tests, the new rapid testing for Big Ten players, and if that could potentially be a game changer in all of this. I don't think the university presidents are going to simply back down and be like, yeah, we're going to have a college No, they're not going to play football. They're not, yeah. they're, I mean, in my opinion, the Big Ten's not going to play football. But here's the deal. The fact that it's even being entertained, and, and I get that there are other fans outside of the Southeastern Conference and in other parts of the country. I, I totally understand it. And they're just as passionate, even though th- their passion's completely misguided because you have to wake up at like 8 o'clock to start tailgating for an 11 o'clock game under this gray sky in Illinois. Regardless. Hater. That be, Yeah, I hate the Big Ten. My, my thing is the fact that we're even entertaining the idea of, well, if they start the season – should we postpone the playoff? Would it be a legitimate playoff or a national title? No. If, no, it, like, listen, you had, fans, okay. you were the one that not only you, like, people always say, like, you made your bed, you got to sleep in it. They were the ones that tried to be at the forefront and the leaders at, like, the, the very front of this parade going into the 2020 football season. They were going to be the ones that dictated what every other conference did. And they, I'm not going to say the F word, but they effed it up badly. Badly. The optics. And then, and, 
Sure. So whatever. I don't even know what that means at this point, Connor. Regardless, <laughs> they they sat here and tried to make a power play and strong arm everyone else into following them. And they got, the, like, like I've said before, they got their little lap dogs, the Pac-12, to do exactly what they wanted to do. And they thought that like, just everyone else would fall in place. And it didn't happen. And you got you got caught. You got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. You, you got caught in public just pissing on your in your pants and embarrassing yourself because you didn't do all the things you should have been doing over the past six months to get a season in place. And now that it's happening and it's very, very public because of all the things that you effed up and did incorrectly and didn't communicate well and didn't do your job as a, 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 a conference commissioner, as I, I won't say ADs or the presidents or anything like that, but I just don't think there was ever a time where these presidents and chancellors and the commissioner were ever like, yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to play. I get the optics thing, especially from that standpoint. What, like, we're not going to sit here and wait on the season to include a conference that has. It's not just my hatred for them because they don't win championships, and they, they, like I said this on Saturday, Central Arkansas and Austin P. They have the same amount of college football playoff wins as the Big Ten and Pac-12 combined since 2016. Okay, like I, I don't need to wait on on your entire conference to let you know that you're not going to win a national title outside of Ohio State. 2015, yeah. Yeah, 2016. 2015, because it was the 2014 season that, you know, okay. the Big Ten and Pac-12 played in the feel national better championship. now? Is, you, is that good? I mean, anyway. I, was, I was extending your argument, but yeah. So, but the whole thing is, like, we're not going to sit here and wait on the season because, one, you can't get your together and figure out what the right things to do, like, and, and, and moving forward are. But also, you're the one that tried to mess this whole season up. Well before it even got started. How in the hell do you tell me that FCS teams played a football game in Alabama on Saturday night Yeah, and the Big Ten canceled their season three weeks prior? And that's part of the reason that Kevin Warren and the Big Ten continue to get blasted because you have states like Indiana and Ohio where high school football is being played. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, you have professional football being played, high school football being played, but college football isn't. And that's all because of a liability standpoint and the optics of having three Power Five conferences who are still, we're, we're like three and a half weeks away here from actually the start of Power Five football, who yeah. are still looking like they are going to play. And the optics have only gotten worse. And Kevin Warren, from his perspective, he's looking for a way to try and just get something out there. And I have to believe that that's at the root of a lot of this. I'm not saying that that conversation that he had with Donald Trump wasn't productive at all. No, but he's trying to I, Being at the face. one yard line. Yeah, I mean, it's it's trying to save face at the root of all of this. And that's what's so frustrating is that we're being thrown all, all these different things that are being thrown out there and why we have stuff, why we have such crazy reports that come out on a day like Friday is because the Big Ten is a mess and the Big Ten is trying to save face yeah. at every possible turn. Remember that time I told you I was drunk in Nashville and fake proposed to get out of an argument with my girlfriend? That's what Kevin Warren is doing. He's fake Yikes. proposing in, in the, Net, or the Tennessee Titans parking lot. Yikes. Top 25 week is here at SDS. We have so much great content on SDS this week. I know we've got all the news stories that are coming out and all the craziness of the Big Ten. We're going to continue to have all that stuff as well. We've got 10 top 25 stories. We've got top 25 QBs for 2020. Phil Irvin did that one. He also did top 25 running backs for 2020. We've got the top 25 defensive play callers for 2020. Uh, that's from Michael Bratton, who's going to join us in a little bit. He also did the top 25 offensive play callers for this year, as well as the top 25 freshmen for 2020. And then our buddy Adam Spencer did top 25 games for 2020. I did the top 25 coaches, 
the top 25 teams, and I did what the AP poll should have looked like with the teams that are actually playing football. I like that. And I did the top 25 offensive players in the SEC, the top 25 defensive players in the SEC, and monitoring that the past few days with all these opt-outs has been all over the place. And if you guys are sitting here thinking, hey, Chris, Connor did a lot of work this week. What were you doing? What, what, did, what did you bring to the table for Top 25 week? I just found out we were having Top 25 week yesterday. So pretty pumped. Uh, it's going to be a fun week. But there's a ton, a ton. Like, I get so excited every Monday with, with uh, was it Matt Hayes, the Monday Down South? Matt Hayes crushes Monday Down so South. Good. So many great nuggets that are in that, that if you want to know the inner workings of someone who's connected very well to college football, we've had Matt yeah. Hayes on this before, always, always, always be able to read whatever Matt Hayes has going so on. Good. Matt Hinton as well, who provides you know great Monday content for us as well. But so okay. every Monday that comes out, it's an incredible, incredible read, and it's, it's like super like lengthy and detailed. And it's like Christmas, because we get this every single day this week. It's going to be awesome. Let's talk about coaches and and um, and offensive players this week because we basically did top twenty-five teams, kind of a variation of that uh, last week. We can with when we talked about the AP poll and we talked about kind of where okay. we would we would rank specific teams. Um, we can save top twenty-five defensive players in the SEC for later this week. But let's first talk about top twenty-five coaches. So my top ten here, and I'll, I'll get to some some points that I kind of want you to kind of want to feel out where you're at on all of this. At number 10, I have Paul Christ, Wisconsin coach. Number 9, I have Mike Leach. Number 8, Jimbo Fisher. Number 7, Brian Kelly. Number 6, Lincoln Riley. Number 5, Dan Mullen. Number 4, Kirby Smart. Number 2, Ed Ogeron. Number, or no, that's number 3 is Ed Ogeron. Number 2 is Dabo Sweeney. And number 1 is Nick Saban. What's your biggest beef there? Um, so for me... I, I just feel like we're way too high on Mike Leach. Okay. Leach is tough because there are the, the the argument against Leach is, well, dude has had one top ten season in his entire time as a head coach. And ironically enough, it was with Gardner Minshew at Washington State in twenty eighteen. Like a, a year in which nobody predicted Washington Washington State or a Mike Leach coach team to be in that discussion. They very much were. Leach, in terms of the accomplishments, is obviously incredible. To have 12 seasons of 8-plus wins at Texas Tech and Washington State is not an easy thing to do. It's not. Mike Price, Mike Price took uh, Washington State to the Rose Bowl. True. Sustained success, a little bit different, I, I would argue, as well. And considering where Mike Leach, where that program was when Mike Leach inherited Washington State, which was the worst program in the Pac-12 at the time. Like, not even close. It was right. the the bottom of the barrel. And again, to the point where in 2018, they're, you know, legitimately in the playoff hunt, all that stuff. Wait, Leach, when were they in the playoff hunt? 2018, with Gardner Minshew. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, they finished They finished What's number that? 10. Yeah. You were, you don't remember that? Yeah, we talked about it. I don't remember them being in the playoff hunt. Yeah, here. I'll look it up. I'll look up the, the 2018 rankings, where, where they were with that. But Leach essentially gets a little bit of this most accomplished with less talent bump. Because you're right, compared to some of the other coaches on this list, he doesn't have the New Year's Six Bowl appearances. He doesn't have the conference championships. We're talking, yeah, so he was sitting there going into the Apple Cup. They were number seven in the country with one loss only on their resume. So they theoretically could have gone into the Pac-12 and still had their playoff hopes alive during that 2018 season. It's very loaded field in 2018. 
2018 would have been... Bama, Notre Dame, Clemson. Weren't they, those, they were all undefeated. Yeah, I think there was going to be a question about what happens if you have a one-loss Pac-12 champ as opposed to an undefeated Notre Dame team when Notre Dame didn't have to play in the conference championship. Yep. They were in the hunt. They were in the hunt. I'm not saying that they were automatically going to a playoff, but when you're at number seven, you know, regular season finale, that's in the hunt. So Leach is tough just because I think the lifetime accomplishments of what he's been able to do with that offense where no matter where he's been able to go, he's been able to establish his identity at those specific places, I think that gives him the bump. And it's more of a more accomplished thing in a way, but it's the fact that like, dude does it without having recruiting classes that rank in the top 50. And he still is able to crank out eight win seasons. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do at places that are historical doormats in their respective conferences. Yeah, so my thing with Leach is this, um, his record against the top 25, 16 and 47, that's a, a winning percentage of 254 versus the top 10, 7 and 20. That's a winning percentage of 259. That ranks seventh currently in the SEC and then eighth um, in the SEC for the, uh, the top 25 ones. And it's not even just that because I understand like he is limited with it's the same thing kind of like with Stoops where there's like a built in excuse. I wouldn't say that he's like it, it kind of props him up. It's like, well, you know, he didn't have as much talent. And, and I get that. But at the same time, recruiting is part of the a part of coaching for one and when i look at like his whole body of work we all really look at like, it, like mike leach is almost kind of like oprah it's like all of a sudden or beyonce it's like we just decided this was like a good thing and and that and just never looked back like i don't really know how we got here because he only has two seasons in 19 years where he has 10 plus wins he only has he's only won nine uh nine wins in back-to-back -back seasons twice he's also had four of his last eight seasons uh, he finished with a, a record under 500. And, and I think it's great what he's been able to do at like those smaller schools. And, and I think, where, where, how do we look at Mike Leach if he doesn't upset Texas on ABC in primetime in 2008? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I think still with Leach, we do factor things in like that. Because to sit here and be like, oh, we should compare Mike Leach to Ryan Day, when Ryan Day inherited Justin mm -hmm. Fields and a pr program that Urban Meyer built up. Yeah, so, totally agree. Like Ryan Day's been to a playoff, Mike Leach hasn't. It's not as simple as that when Mike Leach inherited a program who I believe before the season before he got there in twenty eleven, Washington State was yeah, Washington State was two and seven in the Pac twelve. Right. I don't disagree with you in that sense, but I'm just saying, like, if we're going to treat him like a Toyota Corolla and just be like, well, he's super dependable, he's going to get eight wins every year, and like, like you can't. I don't like making an excuse for someone where the ceiling is so close to the floor. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if he's winning eight games, that's good. But, like, is it? Like, are we – why are we sell like, – I, I wouldn't think a top ten coach in the country is a guy that's going to maybe get you to a New Year's Day Bowl once every couple of seasons. I mean, only two seasons with ten-plus wins. And, sure. and, again, I get that he's, like, been at, like, traditional doormats. But, like, if he was a – that great of a coach, do you think he would probably be at a bigger school? I think he'd be at a bigger school if he wasn't Mike Leach with the personality and what you have to do to be able to schmooze and what you have to do to not necessarily make your athletic director worried that you're going to say something to get you fired yeah. and why you're not willing to necessarily I, play the game. I just feel like he's he's a lot like – and he's, it's, he's an incredible innovator and an awesome play caller and an offensive genius. But it's kind of like the same thing with Paul Johnson when he's at Georgia Tech. Like, it's, it's a – 
unique hire and they're going to do something completely different on offense it's going to give a lot of teams fits especially if you're on like a, a short week and, and trying to prepare for all of the different things that they throw at you but you're also kind of putting a ceiling over your program's head of like yeah we might get nine like nine wins is the ceiling we may bust through that every i don't know five six years and get 10 or 11. i, I just for me like there's there's 10 other coaches in the country that would that are better yeah i mean and i think it's tough to remember too just the like expectations in the SEC, expectations at Alabama, we don't necessarily, and we're in an era now where the eight-win season is is less relevant than ever probably. Yeah. Just because of what's prioritized, you know, the incentive the incentive of getting to a New Year's Six Bowl, getting to a playoff. It's just, it's different now. And I think there are a lot of programs who if you're an athletic director, you're like, hey, I need a program that can just give me some winning football and get something that are going to get people in the stands. Mike Leach is going to bring that where wherever he goes. Yeah. So, um, I, I took a little bit of heat for having Coach O at three. And some would say that's recency bias. Because I come back to, and I'm not going to, I'll need to provide the stat one more time as to why he's at number three. Because it's not just as simple as winning a national championship. Because we've seen one-year wonders before, not to go all Larry Coker or anything. But, like, those have happened. Coach O is in this spot because since he was hired as LSU's full-time coach in 2017, he has as many top ten wins, 12, as Tom Herman, Jimbo Fisher, Dan Mullen, Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, James Franklin, and Jim Harbaugh combined. Right. Combined. That is a stunning stat to be able to think about. Look, this is someone who has been in the toughest division in college football and has still found a way to get it done. And so for those who still think, oh, you got to hold the old Miss stuff against him, I don't yeah. as much. I don't as much just because that's a decade ago. And while it'll hold him... It'll hold him in terms of like the most accomplished coaches. That's going to hold him back for a while. I get that, but in terms of guys that you would want running your program like that, I think just that is a it's just such a great fit at LSU, and that is why I think what he has been able to build there is why he is deserving of that number three spot. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I, oh. I put him behind Brian Kelly just because of the 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 resume and like the longevity of of his career. Um, I, I wouldn't disagree with that because, I mean, what Coach O's done, yeah, like you look at those, we, we did that graphic a couple weeks ago where we went over like each team or each SEC coach's record versus top 25, top 10 teams, all that kind of stuff. Coach O's numbers, it's just such a night and day difference of uh, at Ole Miss against the top 25, 0-12, against the top 10, 0-8. Yep. Um, it just, you know, what he's done the past couple of seasons, and, and I, again, it goes back to, Going into that meeting, bringing that big ass binder that was like two inches thick, and be like, somebody I have else a plan. prepared for him. Yeah, well, what did they really? Yeah. Oh, but regardless, but like I have a plan, and he's the right guy for the job. Like he deserved to get the job, and and what he's done in the past two seasons, they just beat seven top ten teams this year, it's, and it's, it's that's insane. coming off of absolutely insane. It's ridiculous, and I think over the past two seasons they've they've won, they're twelve and two or something like that, or eleven two against against top twenty five or top ten teams. It's it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. So very, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I I know I, I took heat also for having Dan Mullen ahead of Lincoln Riley and Jimbo Fisher. And some are going to say, Dan Mullen hasn't even won a division title. Why do you have him at number five? Why do you think he's a better coach than Lincoln Riley? Why do you think he's a better coach than Jimbo Fisher? I've said it before. I'll say it again. There are not five coaches in the country who I would rather start my program with than Dan Mullen. I believe that just because I believe in his ability to be able to maximize talent. I understand he needs to be able to get that five-star talent into Gainesville in order to compete at the same level that Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, Ed O'Dron are. I get that. At the same time, Last year, in my opinion, was really big for why I think Dan Mullen is currently a better coach than Jimbo Fisher. 
what we've seen from Jimbo Fisher, especially the last three years, where you look at that 2017, 2017 where DeAndre Francois goes down in the season opener against Alabama, and that team fell apart. And yeah. last year, Florida could have been in a very similar situation with that team when Felipe Franks went down. Kyle Trask comes in, and it was a, a very different story for that Florida team who, by the way, won a New Year's Six Bowl. And as I always say, Dan Mullen is the first coach to ever start off at a program with consecutive New Year's Six slash BCS Bowl victories, which is an incredible That's thing crazy. to think about. Considering where that program was, I guess they had a ton of starters returning, but it was still a four-win team that he inherited. Yeah, and to be four, able to I do mean, that... Jimbo Jimbo started at the same time as Dan Mullen. Like, let's not forget that as well. Somebody was given a $75 million check with all the resources in the world, and one wasn't. And the one who wasn't was Dan Mullen. Let's not right. forget that. So I think it's it's hard not to look at his record and how bad they were against like good teams at Mississippi State. Um but like what he's done the first two seasons, I, I would have him above Jimbo. And and that's strictly for me, I would have him ahead of Jimbo because of what Jimbo like how he left that program at, at Florida State and just in shambles. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that what we've seen from Dan Mullen so far, to me, in my opinion, he's done better competing against the elite competition in the SEC since he's been at Florida than what I've seen Lincoln Riley do against the elite competition against the SEC. When, if we're going to sit here and say that the SEC is the premier conference in college football, Lincoln Riley losing to three different SEC teams in the college football playoff, the last two of those games were over at halftime, Sorry, I think that matters. And I think that when you've been given that good of a hand, and don't get me wrong, yeah. Lincoln Riley, incredible offensive mind. There's a case to be made. He is the best offensive mind in the sport. But you know what? When you come up short consistently against three different SEC teams, you're going to be held to a different standard. That's just, that is reality. Is so, short the right word? I Infinitely short. Infinitely short. Yeah, that's fair. So that's why I am higher there on Dan Mullen than I am Lincoln Riley. The SEC coaches who I had in the top 25, so I already said, you know, one, I had Saban, um, Coach O, I had at number three, Kirby Smart at number four, Dan Mullen at number five, Jimbo at eight, Mike Leach at nine. I had Stoops, our boy, put your money in this bank yep. at number 15, and then I had Gus at number 23. And Gus is weird yeah. because when you get into this like whole most accomplished versus best coach thing, it's super, super complicated because you're talking about somebody who has three victories against Nick Saban and who's been to a national championship. But at the same time, it's like, all right, you've had one top 10 finish during the playoff era when obviously there has been no shortage of, shortage of talent at Auburn. Gus is always going to be a really, really tricky rank in, in something like this. I still think he is a good coach. I don't think he is a great coach, especially like you yeah. kind of thought he would be in the beginning of the playoff era. That's fair. Ta Top 25 SEC offensive players. I set a rule for this. A parameter. It's been a while since we've had a parameter, right? Optics. <laughs> if you're going to be a top 25 SEC player coming into the 2020 season, I have to have seen you play against SEC competition. That means on, rule that freshman. You didn't even ask me who I had in my rankings. I have Brian Kelly Oh, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Brian Kelly um, three. Dang. I have Dabo wow. at one. I'm kidding. Um, I, had, <laughs> I had Stoops and Jimbo tied at 10. Um, I like that. I had, I had, um, what do you call it? Let me see here. I had, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, Mac Brown at nine. I did put Ryan Day at eight, and then Mullen, Kirby, Lincoln Riley, Coach O, Brian Kelly, Dabo, and Saban. Not bad. Yeah, Not bad. Go. Now you can proceed. All right, my bad. Sorry, I didn't know you had ranked. I stepped right over you. My fault. My fault. It's all good. 
So for top 25 uh, SEC offensive players and defensive players, I set the parameter just as I did for preseason all SEC team selections. You have to have played in the SEC. If I'm going to judge KJ Costello and Jamie Newman, I'd rather judge them based on what I've seen them do against SEC competition. If we're in the yeah. agreement that the SEC is the premier conference in college football, why am I judging those guys strictly off what they've done in other conferences? It'd be different if they were all Americans or something like that. They have not been to that level yet. Therefore, I did not have grad transfers that were outside of the conference ranked in these top 25. I did not have freshmen ranked in the top 25. So my top 10 was as follows. 10. Rakeem Boyd, the Arkansas running back. Number nine, Drake Jackson, the Kentucky center. Number eight, Kyle Pitts, the Florida tight end. Number seven, Darian Kennard, the Kentucky offensive tackle. Number six, Najee Harris, the Alabama running back. Number five, Kylan Hill, Mississippi State stud. Number four, Jalen Waddell, the Alabama receiver. Number three, Alex Leatherwood, Alabama offensive lineman. Number two, Trey Smith, the Tennessee offensive lineman. And number one, because there is no Jamar Chase, yes, I have Devontae Smith. The Alabama receiver is the number one player in the entire conference. The number one, number one offensive Damn player so. in the entire conference is Devontae okay. Smith. Unless you can come up with something better. I so I would have one. I would definitely have. Um, I, I would definitely have Mond in the top ten. Um, top tw- <sighs> top ten overall in the conference. Yeah. Um, I I have I would have Waddle ahead of De- Devonta Smith. I think he's and I and part of that to be fair, is because of what he can do on special teams. But he is so explosive and, and unlike any other player in the entire country. So I would have him um, ahead of Devonta Smith. I don't know if I would have him at one. Um, it, I mean, it's tough because you look at, like, like, Jamar Chase, and, you know, obviously he's he would have been the clear-cut number one. I definitely would include Mond. I would have Pitts in the top five for sure from Florida. Oh, um, top five, dang. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, like, that kid is – and it, it might be something that we don't see until he gets to the next level, but that kid is gonna, is such a difference maker and just so good. No, last year, Jalen Waddle had 33 catches for 560 yards, and three he had three touchdowns in that Auburn game. Again, Great. he is huge, huge in special teams as well. And I, I've said it before, I have no problem with him, preseason All-American, all of those things. Still very, very high on him. I think it kind of gets overlooked what Devontae Smith did last year. Devontae Smith yeah, last fair. year, 68 catches for 1,256 yards and 14 touchdowns. In an offense that featured Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, both top 15 picks, and the aforementioned Jalen Waddle, to have that type of production. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I went back and I watched some of his highlights again, and you know we've seen them all at this point, especially what he did at Ole Miss. He's insane. He's absolutely insane. The route tree is off the charts. The plays that that guy is able to make, it's not just a slant in 80 yards. It's not. And if right. you think that that's, that's all it is with Devontae Smith, seriously, go back and watch him. Because some, even just watch some of the plays that he made on Derek Stingley, where he's making those plays on the sideline. I'm not talking about the one where Derek Stingley's looking right. at the sideline. He's not ready to go. I'm talking about him going up and making a play, high-pointing the ball, and coming down with it inbounds. He does everything that you could want a receiver to do at 6'1". And I just think that he, him returning for Alabama changes what so many defenses are going to be able to do because mm-hmm. it's not that Jalen Waddell isn't a deep threat, like he is, but where I fear Jalen Waddell is more in the intermediate game and then him busting loose with right. like the smallest gap in a secondary. Like That's what he does so extremely well. I think Devontae Smith can beat you in so many different ways, and I give him 
a lot of credit for having the year that he did in an offense like that where you're surrounded by that much talent and to have that much production. Yeah, he's my number one guy. That's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like that. It's, it's, a, it's a good list. It's um, there, I like that you included Drake Jackson here too. But there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of good offensive players. I, I said this a couple weeks ago. I feel like there's in a unlike, not like unlike any other year, but I feel like after last year and seeing people like Tua and Burrow and all, like, all that kind of stuff, we kind of thought that this year would be like not as exciting from a from like a star mm-hmm. power standpoint. I feel like there's more star power top to bottom. The fact that Seth Williams didn't make this list is crazy to me. I had Seth Williams, so speaking of that, I had eight receivers listed, even without Jamar Chase, when I took Jamar Chase off. Here are the receivers mm-hmm. that I had listed on this. And by the way, you should definitely go read all of this on SaturdayDownSouth.com. All of this great top 25 content is out. You should read it in its entirety. Number one, I had Devontae Smith. Number four, I had Jalen Waddle. Number 14 overall on this list, I had Seth Williams. Number 16, Terrace Marshall. Number 17, George Pickens. Number 18, Jamon Osman. Number 20, Elijah Moore, fake dog piece celebration. Yeah, still look overlook all that. Look at the numbers, really, really good. And number 24, Gator fans like this. I had Trayvon Grimes there. Yeah, that's fair. So, so like the SEC is loaded at loaded at receiver and loaded at the offensive line. I think I had nine offensive linemen listed, something like that. Three or eight offensive linemen listed, three of which were from Kentucky, three of which were from Alabama, and then I also had Trey Smith in there as well. And then I had Trey Hill, the Georgia stud. Um, who's just blocks everybody from the center position. But yeah. I only had two quarterbacks listed in this entire list. And I had Kellen Mond at number 25. He started off my list. Mm-hmm. And then I had Kyle Trask at number 11. I realized I am higher on Kyle Trask than all the folks over at Pro Football Focus. They are not Kyle Trask believers, I can say that. But it's weird because because of the SEC talent at receiver, I kind of tend to think that we're actually going to see quarterbacks helped out by that. And okay. I think that by season's end, we're going to be talking about these quarterbacks. Maybe it's a Miles Brennan, or maybe it is a KJ Costello, a Jamie Newman, something like that, and how potentially they could be lifted as a result of having very, very prolific, uh, a lot of NFL-ready receivers. In yeah, that's court. fair. I agree with that. All righty. Well, I don't want to stop the top 25 conversation. I think we should just continue it with our, yeah. our friend, our coworker, Michael Bratton. He's going to talk a little bit about some offensive minds, some defensive minds, some freshmen, Tennessee, who knows what, what he's got. Um, SEC Mike has all things uh, are on the table with him. So let's go to our interview with Michael Bratton. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is our own Michael Bratton. Whenever I say on this podcast that our news team crushes it, I'm usually bragging about the work that Michael does as well as our buddy Adam Spencer. Uh, Michael also writes some columns for us. And, you know, for Top 25 week, you did three different stories, including the best offensive and defensive minds in the sport, as well as the Top 25 freshmen in the SEC. So let's just kind of get right into it. You have Mike Leach as the number three offensive play caller in college football behind Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley. For those who aren't as familiar with Leach's work yet, explain why he's so high on your list, but you cannot use any sort of pirate references. Hold on now. Don't rush me. I, I always got to drink a beer when I record a podcast, as listeners yeah, know. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Mike. There you go. I heard the, the can crack. That's usually a good sign. Now, what was the question I was drinking? So you have Mike Leach as the number three offensive play caller in college football yes, behind sir. Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley. 
for mm-hmm. those who aren't necessarily well versed in all things Mike Leach, or maybe they just know him as that like quirky dude up there in Washington, explain why he's so high on your list, but you cannot make any sort of pirate references or pirate puns. I hate pirate puns. All right, I'll make it pretty simple. I mean, this guy's been coaching college football for 20, 25 years, and everywhere he's been, he's putting up huge numbers. I never know who in the hell any of these quarterbacks are that he's got to work with. Last year, some guy named Anthony Gordon, and the only time I, you know, I ever even seen this kid was if anybody missed it, HBO did a special on Washington State for a week, and dude looked like he was about 180 pounds, and they get they found him at, uh, you know, some kind of Justin Bieber concert. He threw for 5,500 yards, 48 touchdowns. I mean, what more do you need to know? And it's he's done it at the Pac-12, which I know they don't have great defense, but he did it in the Big 12 when they were actually a lot better when Mike Leach was there at Texas Tech, and he did it at Kentucky, he did it at Valdosta, and he's about to do it at Mississippi State. Everywhere he goes, the offensive numbers just explode, so I've got a ton of faith in Coach Leach to get it done. So, yeah, I mean, along those lines, how good do you think MSU's defense is going to be from the jump with this personnel against an all-SEC schedule because I feel like that's one of the big questions that we have about whether this Mike Leach experience is going to, this whole experiment is going to be able to work. How much do you think they're really going to be able to look like a true Mike Leach offense in year one? Well, he's, you know, if you go by what Coach Leach's saying, I mean, it's already installed. He's good to go. I'm not sure I'm particularly buying that because for one you know, I, I'm a little bit down on K.J. Costello. I've seen talent from him, but last year he was banged up with the concussions. And is he really going to come in and dominate? I don't know. I mean, he, he possibly could. I'm actually really high on they've got a freshman named Will Rogers, quarterback from Brandon, Mississippi. He was the heir apparent of Gardner Minshew down there. So, And this is, uh, I believe, his only two Power 5 offers were Washington State and Mississippi State. So, you know, Mike Leach has been high on this kid. I think we're going to see some Will Rogers this year little teaser there for the uh, SEC rookie rankings, freshman rankings, what have you. But, yeah, I think they'll be pretty good. The the biggest question for me is the receivers. And early buzz out of camp is they've got a lot of faith in some of these freshmen they've got. They've landed the Alabama graduate transfer shavers. So I think they'll be good. I also like the guy they had, Javante Payton. I don't think he fit the last offense. I think he'll fit this one better. But – you know, I don't anticipate they're going to be scoring 60 points a game or anything like that right out the gate just because they didn't have the off season and uh, just it seems like it's incredibly difficult to mix in all these transfers and everything and these players that are completely unfamiliar with the system. So I think it's going to be a little bit struggle coming out the gate. But by the end of the season, I think they're going to be firing on all cylinders. Mike, looking across the state, I know you're really high on on John Rice Plumley, um, and and going into year one with Lane Kiffin and and still having a quarterback battle with Matt Corral. How do you see that playing out, and, and what do you think we can expect from that offense this year? You know, the more I hear from Lane Kiffin, the more I think everyone thinks Arkansas is going 0 and 10. I think Ole Miss, maybe the team in the West that's going 0 and 10. They they won't. They'll win a game Dang. or two here or there, but. No, I mean, I'm I'm kind of out on Ole Miss. I'm picking them seventh in the West. I do love John Rice, but all indication is it sounds like Matt Corral might be the, the lead dog in that quarterback competition. And if Kiffin goes that route, I have even less faith in them to get the job done because 
I think it was night and day when those. I know it's a different system, a different offense, new coaching staff, but I mean, Matt Corral was basically bogging that thing down last year. They throw in John Rice Plumley, and he looks like a vanilla Vic back there. I mean, how could you keep him <laughs> off the field? Oh, my God. Uh, the team that Ole Miss is playing week one, Florida. You had Dan Mullen at number four on your list of offensive play callers. A lot of people in the anti-Mullen camp are you know, very vocal that he doesn't have the division title yet. He struggled against league competition. I, I think you're preaching to the choir a, a little bit here, but tell us why you had him so high at number four. I guess it's because I'm not stupid like his haters, but... I mean, just look at Mississippi State before he got there. They were a dumpster fire. Look at them after. I mean, we all have a ton of respect for Joe Moorhead, but he couldn't do anything. And um, Nick Fitzgerald, I mean, he was a completely different player without Dan Mullen there. Felipe Franks was, you know, a season away from probably transferring down to Division Two or something. And, and he turned into, you know, I don't think he was an elite player by any stretch, but he was capable under Dan Mullen. And he... I mean, I still can't believe – I saw a podcast last week. They were like, have you, have you heard about this Kyle Trask guy? So it's like they haven't been watching football or something. I mean, he came off the bench, elevated Florida to such a degree. We all know the story. I'm not going to repeat about his damn – didn't play in high school and all that. But, you know, just take all that into account and look at what Dan Mullen did with Kyle Trask. I know everyone's fired up about Emory Jones and what he's going to be able to do eventually, but – no, I mean, there's – yes, he's never won a division title, but he was at Mississippi State. Last I checked, they never win a division title, so I don't know why that's really being held against them. Florida was terrible that last year under McIlwain and immediately win 10 game. Then they come around and win 11, and these are basically with the vast majority of players Dan Mullen didn't even recruit. So now he's got – I think he's got a deeper roster. I think he's got a better roster and with the staff continuity, with the continuity at a lot of key positions like that quarterback position, that's why I've got the Gators winning the SEC East this year. Ooh. Before we get into that awful take, um, I, I do want to first talk about uh, the other returning quarterback, Kellen Mond. And I know you, you definitely had, um, I think you had Mullen ahead of a guy like Jimbo Fisher. And I think the biggest debate for returning quarterbacks on who is the best quarterback in the SEC this offseason has been between Kyle Trask and Kellen Mond. Is this the year we finally see Kellen Mond take that next step and finally progress to the quarterback we thought he was going to be? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is what he is. How many games has he started now? I'm not trying to be a hater because I think he's one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC, but I get tired of hearing these. I mean, it just seems like every offseason we're going into, is this a year for Garantano? Is this the year for Jake Bentley? That was my B. Is this the year for Kellen Mond? I mean, they are who they are. You know, he's not going to – Joe Burrow, everyone's – who's the next Joe Burrow? There's not going to be another Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow had a historic season. We just saw basically everybody on that side of the balls in the NFL. He was surrounded by talent. He was the number one overall pick. He had gotten banged up the year prior. He'd never really seen the field. That's a completely different story than a guy like Kellen Mond. And, again, I'm not trying to be a hater because I think Texas A&M – it's a serious threat to win the SEC West, but it's not going to be because Kellen is some Heisman contender because he's just not that. I've seen enough of his game to know who he is and what he's not, and he's not going to be you know, this elite player. And, hell, I've got – if you want to talk about my freshman list real quick, I've got Haynes, Haynes King, the backup quarterback, is 
one of the top 15 freshmen coming. I think he's going to see the field quite a bit this year. Dang, interesting. So speaking of that, your top 25 SEC freshmen set to come out on Friday for those of you who are listening to this on Wednesday. I'm curious what your thoughts are on Eric on Eric Gilbert, especially now with Jamar Chase out. I mean, I feel like that's been something we've been hearing about out of LSU camp a lot, the five-star tight end. How high are you on him, especially this year with all of that depletion and that LSU offense has? Well, that doesn't get any higher than number one. That's where I've got Eric Gilbert. This guy, he's just, he's a monster. I mean, I think he's the next Julio Jones in the SEC. He runs like a receiver. He's built like a tight end. He's just dominant in high school. He's doing the same thing at LSU. It, you know, it remains to be seen how that's going to affect him with, you know, Chase not getting all the coverage thrown his way. But I don't think that's going to slow down Gilbert. And Miles Brennan just cannot, you know, contain himself when talking about this kid. So, yeah, he's going to be a monster. A lot of these guys on my freshman list I think are going to be, you know, all SEC freshman team, obviously. I think Gilbert's going to be all SEC, just first or second team. He may even be, I don't want to put him over Kyle Pitts because we've seen what he can do, but probably second team, all SEC. I'm giving it to Gilbert. Okay, it's been 11 minutes and seven seconds, and I haven't said one thing about Alabama or Tennessee. So let's just break that streak. (laughs) Talking about freshmen, is it realistic to think that Bryce Young is going to play? I I feel like Bama fans are really overdoing it with the hype train with this kid, and and Mac Jones is going to be the guy. But do you think that Bryce Young will see the field and or get the starting job before the season's over? I think he's definitely going to see the field. I don't know if he's going to start, but – you know, he was one that was, I was kind of struggling where to put him on the list, so I put him at number eight, and that's just based on the fact that we may not see him start a game, but you know, it, just the buzz is incredible. These receivers seem to be buying in. I'm not a big Mac Jones believer. I think after the Georgia game, after Alabama loses by 14 points, Mac Jones is going to be benched, and they'll put in Bryce Young if that happens. So, yes, to answer your question, I guess he will start, but – Again, that's just more projection, but I've, I've got him at number eight on my list. I think he sees the field without a doubt this year. When we had you on a few months ago for signing day, we talked a lot about Jordan Birch. By the way, signing day was essentially another lifetime ago. I can't believe that was only, what, like six, seven months ago. I, I made the comparison that the goal for him this year, especially in that buck linebacker spot, should be similar to what we saw from Dante Fowler back in the day when he was this five-star freshman in Will Muschamp's defense at Florida. Now that Jordan Birch is actually at South Carolina after enrolling this summer, what should the expectations be for him? I don't, I'm not very high on him, to be honest with you, this year. I mean, I think he'll be a dominant player down the line, but didn't enroll early, of course, you know, that maybe is not that big a deal now that spring got wiped out and much of the off season. But, you know, it's not that I've heard anything bad, but South Carolina's got a pretty deep defensive line coming back. Mm-hmm. So I think he'll, he'll certainly play. But I've been hearing just as much good stuff about the rest of the freshman defensive line. They signed a really good class. And like I said, they, I mean, they're bringing back a five-star in Zach Pickens from last year. They've got a lot of talent on that defensive line. I really love the hire of uh, Tracy Rocket, the defensive line coach. I think he's one of the best defensive line coaches in the nation. So he'll get a lot out of Birch. But, you know, if fans are thinking he's just going to come in and dominate, I think he will by the end of his career. But this year, uh, I've got him number 24 on my list. So I didn't try to just go off the recruiting rankings. I went by a mix of, you know, how much talent he's got 
the position of need and the buzz I'm hearing from these camps. So I certainly expect him to make an impact, but I don't expect him to be one of the better SEC freshmen this season. Interesting. Mike, a couple months ago you posted uh, your rankings of the offensive play callers and defensive play callers in the SEC, and there have been few times that I've ever been so irrationally angered uh, by something I've seen on the Internet. So that being said, you had Steve Sarkeesian at nine um, on this list behind the likes of Mike Bobo and Steve Ensminger uh, was behind Bobo as well. However, in the national rankings, you have Bobo at 25, which is behind Sarkeesian and a couple other words. Do you, did something change your mind with that? Do you think that Sarkeesian is in the top half or top tier of the SEC, or why do you think he's not a good play caller? Well, it's just been watching him throughout his career, brother. I mean, Washington got better when he left. USC got better when he left. Atlanta Falcons went in the tank when he came on. Uh, last time I checked, he got the job briefly there at Alabama in the national championship. I, I don't know if fans remember that one. Can you? Can you? I can't even really remember it. How did that game end? Oh, Kiffin left midweek, uh, and they had to get a whole new offensive coordinator for the national championship game. Also, the the Falcons were a top ten scoring <laughs> offense in year one. Continue. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, just looking at his track record, I'm not impressed. And last year they put up incredible numbers, to be sure. But he is a tough one for me to, to judge because they've just loaded with talent. And that's the way I kind of grade these coaches is what they're doing with the talent. And I think just about any of these coordinators on this list could have coached Alabama last year and put up incredible numbers because of all the NFL talent they had there to work with. But this year, I think we'll get a lot better read, or at least I will, on Steve Sarkeesian, the job he's doing, because I'm just shocked. There's so many people, it doesn't seem like they think there's going to be any drop-off between two and Mac Jones. I think that's an incredible drop-off. And now that uh, these receivers like Waddle and Smith don't have uh, the other receivers to kind of shade the coverage away from them, I don't know if they're going to have as big a seasons either. So if they do it again, I'll be the first one to call myself an idiot and I'll move Sarkeesian up them rankings, but I don't anticipate it's going to happen. I promise you that Marler will be the first one to call you an idiot. Yeah, it will not be you. <laughs> I mean, I think that it's a really good point though about like not enough people are making a, a, enough about the drop off of the losing two first round receivers uh, to the NFL and then having two more on the, on the depth chart. So anyway, it was good. Good catching up, Mike. Connor, close it out. <laughs> well, last thought from you, Mike. Um, I'll set the over-under for Tennessee at five and a half regular season wins, and I'll give you even odds on both sides of that. What would you take? I'm going over. They're going to win seven games this year. Tennessee is going to be pretty solid, I think. But I think the SEC East is going to be better than the West. So, I mean, it's going to be a war. Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee. I think they could all potentially contend for the East title. And, and yeah, I think it's kind of ridiculous. I've seen a lot of these people – Alabama's going undefeated. Georgia's going undefeated. Florida's going to go 9-1. and one. That ain't happening. I mean, there's going to be lots of losses across the board here. I don't mm -hmm. think there's a dominant team in the SEC. I thought Florida and Texas A&M potentially had the easiest schedule before we went all SEC. Now that's just completely been just blown to smithereens. I mean, this is a damn gauntlet no matter how you look at it. I think the SEC champion is probably going to have two losses this year. Wait, I don't uh, hate Mike, that. real quick. I know I didn't add this in there, uh, Connor, but um, while we have you, going through this Tennessee team, I think you're right. I, I, I agree with the SEC East possibly being better than the uh, than the West this year. 
Arkansas and Mizzou, two first-year coaches. Who do you think ends the season with a, with a better record or, or has a higher ceiling at that program? Mm, I mean, I think Drinkowitz will probably have a better record. Higher ceiling, I'll go Sam Pittman because I think I think even if this is going to be a Missouri, Mizzou fans' worst nightmare here, but I think Drinkowitz could be a really good coach. And this is just a stepping stone job for him. I mean, that's kind of his career path. I've I've been impressed with, uh, you know, just kind of his media personality. I think he's going to be an attractive coach if he wins some games. But the biggest thing with Drinkowitz, he made a wise decision. And no one could have foreseen this. But, you know, he kept the defensive coordinator, Walters, there. I mean, that was a good move. I'll I'll give him that. But then you compound that by the fact there was no spring and a very limited offseason I think that's going to be, you know, a masterful move, whereas all these other first-year hires, it's a complete rebuild on both sides of the ball. So Missouri's defense was pretty stout. We all know their offense was a disaster. Derek Dooley, he owes uh, Barry Odom a head coaching job. So that's what Drinkowitz (laughs) has brought in there to fix. And, you know, his track record suggests he'll do it. I've been hearing a lot of good things about the receivers they got in there. Uh, Elijah Young, their freshman running back, he made my list here of top freshmen. And Sean Robinson, not really seen him play, so I don't know what they're getting in him, but I've heard some good things about him. So if Drinkowitz can get that kid to play well, I think Missouri could be a surprise team in the SEC East. Certainly not going to contend, I don't think, for the title by any means, but they'll have a better record than Arkansas. But I like the all-around hires that Sam Pittman is, is making. And these pe- all these people that think Arkansas is a damn joke, they don't know what they're talking about. The joke was Chad Morris, and he's long gone. They hired, you know, we talk and talk about Barry Odom and Kendall Bryles and what great coordinator hires those were, and I think they were, but I think the most uh, underrated hire that offseason was Scott Fountain, the special teams coordinator, because, you know, just go back and watch. If you type in Arkansas special teams the last two years, you're just going to see nothing but a damn joke after joke of a plays. They didn't even have a special team coordinator. Chad Morris didn't know what the hell he was doing. Scott Fountain was one of the best special teams coordinators at Georgia the last couple of years. So Sam Pittman has got that thing turned in the right direction. They've got talent to compete. And I think they're going to win a couple of SEC games this year. Love I just it. I just remember that North Texas play, the, that punt return, where they, they essentially like lulled them to sleep. And then Arkansas allowed a punt return touchdown on a play that Texas North Texas like looked like it was running a fair catch. And then... Arkansas did an Arkansas thing and let that happen. Oh, yeah, they had that, that awful punt last year. They, yeah, you're right. Okay, Arkansas special teams is pretty atrocious. A um, lot of great stuff from you, as always, Mike. Appreciate you coming on. Everybody should be looking out for all things top 25. Uh, Mike, you got anything that you want to plug before you sign off? Yeah, absolutely. When you're done listening to this fantastic Saturday Down South podcast, head on over to that <laughs> SEC podcast. If you like listening to this idiot ramble about SEC football, uh, that hey, two podcasts are better than one. And then uh, the Twitter handle, just SEC Mike. You ever seen some ridiculous takes on Twitter? That's me. So give me a follow there, and uh, uh, let's let's shoot the. Are we allowed to curse on here? I don't know, but let's uh, shoot. Fire the, away. You know what? Awesome. I was gonna say. Sh- no, and all jokes aside, Mike is a phenomenal, phenomenal follow on Twitter for all all things SEC. Absolutely, absolutely. Mike, Mike good stuff. We'll Mike talk soon. Talk soon, man.